0: Section 12 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1 by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, John Hales of Eton, Religion and Dogmatic Orthodoxy, Part 4. Four, Hales is not only always rational in spirit; he has a very definite system of thought. He sees clearly the drift of his principles and is satisfied that the ground on which he stands is the only satisfactory ground of religious conviction. The following extracts, from a very significant sermon, of enquiry and private judgment in religion, will set his rational theory of Christianity in its systematic relations, fully before the reader. The central question with him, as with Falkland, is infallibility. He describes the craving of men after it, and shows them where alone it is to be found, with themselves and with God. An infallibility there must be, but men have marvelously wearied themselves in seeking to find where it is some have sought it in general councils and have conceived that if it be not there to be found it is for certainty fled out of the world some have tied it to the church of rome and to the bishop of that See. every man finds it or thinks he finds it accordingly as that faction or part of the church upon which he is fallen doth direct him thus like the men of sodom before lot's door men have wearied themselves and have gone far and near to find out that which is hard at hand we see many times a kind of ridiculous and jocular forgetfulness of many men seeking for that which they have in their hands so fares it here with men who seek for infallibility in others which either is or ought to be in themselves as saul sought his father's asses whilst they were now at home or as oedipus in the tragedy sent to the oracle to inquire the cause of the plague in thebes whereas himself was the man for infallibility is not a favor appropriated to any one man it is a duty alike expected at the hands of all all must have it saint paul when he gives this precept Galatians six seven directs it not to councils, to bishops, to teachers and preachers, but to all of the Galatian churches, and in them to all of all the churches in the world. Unto you, therefore, and to every one of what sex, of what rank or degree and place soever, from him that studies in his library to him that sweats at the plough, belongs that precept of St. Paul. Be not deceived. But if any man should reply upon our blessed apostle and tell him, Am I like God that I should look not to be deceived? This cannot excuse him. For behold, as if he had purposely meant to have taken this objection away, the apostle joins together both God and us, and tells us, as God cannot, so we must not be deceived. Close quote. He amplifies the subject in a decisive manner, well conscious of the novelty of his views. A man must know, he argues, not only what he has to believe, but why he is to believe. Quote, I comprise it all in two words, what and wherefore. They that come and tell you what you are to believe, what you are to do, and tell you not why, they are not physicians, but leeches. And if you so take things at their hands, you are not like men, but like beasts. I know that is something in hard doctrine for the many to bear, neither is it usually taught by the common teachers. But it is nevertheless true that every man must bear his own burden, and this burden consists not merely in the substance of what we believe, but the reasons why we believe. That part of your burden which contains what, you willingly take up. But that other which comprehends why that is either too hot or too heavy you dare not meddle with it but i must add that also to your burden or else i must leave you for idle persons for without the knowledge of why of the true grounds or reasons of things there is no possibility of not being deceived your teachers and instructors whom you follow they may be wise and learned yet may they be deceived but suppose they be not deceived yet if you know not so much you are not yet excused something there is which makes those men not to be deceived if you will be sure not to be deceived then know you that as well as they is it divine authority you must know that as well as they is it strength of reason you must know it as well as they you can never know that you are not deceived until you know the grounds and reasons upon which you stand for there is no other means not to be deceived but to know things yourselves i will put on this doctrine further and convince you by your own reason it is a question made by john gerson sometime chancellor of paris wherefore hath god given me the light of reason and conscience if i must suffer myself to be led and governed by the reason and conscience of another man will any of you befriend me so far as to assail this question for i must confess i cannot it was the speech of a good husbandman it is but a folly to possess a piece of ground except you till it And how then can it stand with reason that a man should be possessed of so goodly a piece of the Lord's pasture, as is this light of understanding and reason, which he hath endowed us with in the day of our creation, if he suffer it to lie untilled, or sow not in it the Lord's seed? He then inquires into reasons why men are so generally willing in points of religion to cast themselves into other men's arms, and leaving their own reason to rely so much upon another man's. He finds the explanation partly in the natural sloth of men who, Quote, are well content to take their ease and call their sloth modesty, and their neglect of inquiry filial obedience, partly in the fault of the ministry, who are afraid to advise men to search into the reasons and grounds of religion, in case it breed trouble and disquiet, in this manner acting as the sybarites, who, to procure their ease, banish the smiths because their trade was full of noise. Close quote. But also in the fact that, quote, the dregs of the church of rome are not sufficiently washed from the hearts of many men he feels that the protestantism around him of the common teachers is but a poor and imperfect protestantism which does not reach to the uttermost grounds on which religious knowledge like all other knowledge must rest there is no other way than going to the root of the divinely planted reason and conscience in each of us david found this by his own experience i am wiser than my teachers said he in his psalm 119 verse 99 why because he believed them this would never have made him so wise much less wiser why then for thy testimonies saith he are my studies therefore is he wiser than his teachers because that knowing all that they could teach him he stayed not there but by his own search and study he arrives at a degree of knowledge beyond his masters saint basil in his sermons upon some of the psalms Taxes a sort of man who thought it a sin to know more of God than the traditions of their fathers would give them leave, and would not advance or improve the knowledge of the truth by any faculty or industry of their own. Beloved, there is not a more immediate way to fall into the reproof of St. Basil, and to hinder all advancement and growth of Christian knowledge amongst the common sort of men, than this easy and slothful resolution to rest themselves on others' wits. Close quote having thus vindicated personal inquiry and individual thoughtfulness as the basis of all true religion he considers in conclusion the various substitutes on which men repose when they put off the care of their faith and religion from themselves on other men and condemns them in succession extended quote i will show it you by the particular examination of every one of these which i will the willinger do because i see these are the common hackney reasons which most men use in flattering themselves in their mistakes for all this is nothing else but man's authority thrust upon us under divers shapes for first of all education and breeding is nothing else but the authority of our teachers taken over our childhood now there is nothing which ought to be of less force with us or which we ought more to suspect for childhood hath one thing natural to it which is a great enemy to truth and a great furtherer of deceit what is that credulity nothing is more credulous than a child and our daily experience shows how strangely they will believe either their ancients or one another in most incredible reports for to be able to judge what persons what reports are credible is a point of strength of which that age is not capable the chiefest sinew and strength of wisdom saith epicarmus is not easily to believe have we not then great cause to call to better account and examine by better reason whatsoever we learnt in so credulous and easy an age so apt like the softest wax to receive every impression Yet notwithstanding this singular weakness, and this large and real exception which we have against education, I verily persuade myself that if the best and strongest ground of most men's religion were opened, it would appear to be nothing else. Secondly, antiquity, what is it else God only accepted, but man's authority born some ages before us? Now for the truth of things, time makes no alteration. Things are still the same they are, let the time be past, present, or to come those things which we reverence for antiquity what were they at their first birth were they false time cannot make them true were they true time cannot make them more true the circumstance therefore of time in respect of truth and error is merely impertinent yet thus much must i say for antiquity that amongst all these balancing and halting proofs if truth have any advantage against error and deceit it is here for there is an antiquity which is proper to truth and in which error can claim no part but then it must be an antiquity most ancient this cannot be but true for it is god and god is truth all other parts of antiquity deceit and falsehood will lay claim to as well as truth most certain it is truth is more ancient than error for error is nothing else but deviation and swerving from the truth were not truth therefore first there could be no error since there could be no swerving from that which is not when therefore antiquity is pleaded for the proof of any conclusion commended to you for true be you careful to know whether it be most ancient yea or no if it be so then it is an invincible proof and pleads for nothing but the truth if otherwise though it be as ancient i say not as Inacus but as satan himself yet it is no proof of truth thirdly universality is such a proof of truth as truth itself is ashamed of for universality is nothing but a quainter and trimmer name to signify the multitude Now human authority at the strongest is but weak, but the multitude is the weakest part of human authority. It is the great patron of error, most easily abused and most hardly disabused. The beginning of error may be, and mostly is, from private persons, but the maintainer and continuer of error is the multitude. Private persons first beget errors in the multitude and make them public, and publicness of them begets them again in private persons. It is a thing which our common experience and practice acquaints us with that when some private persons have gained authority with the multitude and infused some error into them and made it public the publicness of the error gains authority to it and interchangeably prevails with private persons to entertain it the most singular and strongest part of human authority is properly in the wisest and most virtuous and these i trow are not the most universal if truth and goodness go by universality and multitude What mean, then, the prophets and holy men of God everywhere in Scripture so frequently, so bitterly, to complain of the small number of good men, careful of God and truth? Neither is the complaint proper to Scripture. It is the common complaint of all that have left any records of antiquity behind them. Could wishing do any good, I could wish well to this kind of proof, but it will never go so well with mankind that the most shall be the best. The best that I can say of argument and reason drawn from universality in multitude is this, such reason may perchance well serve to excuse an error but it can never serve to warrant a truth fourthly councils and synods and consent of churches these indeed may seem of some force they are taken to be the strongest weapons which the church had fought with yet this is still human authority after another fashion let me add one thing that the truth hath not been more relieved by these than it hath been distressed at the council of nice met three hundred eighteen bishops to defend the divinity of the son of god but at Ariminum met well near six hundred bishops to deny it i ask then what gained the truth here by a synod certainly in the eye of reason it more endangered it for it discovered the advantage that error had among the multitude above the truth by which reason truth might have been greatly hazarded I have read that the nobility of Rome, upon some fancy or other, thought fit that all servants should wear a kind of garment proper to them, so that it might be known who were servants who were freemen. But they were quickly weary of this conceit, for perceiving in what multitudes servants were in most places, they feared that the singularity of their garment might be an item to them to take notice of their multitude, and to know their own strength, and so at length take advantage of it against their masters. This device of calling councils was but like that fancy of the Roman gentleman for many times it might well have proved a great means to have endangered the truth by making the enemies thereof to see their own strength and work upon that advantage for it is a speedy way to make them to see that which for the most part is very true that there are more which run against the truth than with it Close quote. these are but a few of the numerous passages full of wise and truthful thought to be found in hales's three volumes we have confined ourselves mainly to one aspect of his writings but they possess many independent merits he is before his age not only in his reach of thought on general religious questions but also as an expositor of scripture some of his expositions are fine specimens of exegetical argument as for example that of the sin against the holy ghost in the first volume it is quite singular how the loads of technical difficulty by which such a subject has been obscured disappear under his clear quiet direct analysis keeping close to facts and laying them bare in the face of the pseudo interpretations which have turned attention away from them he is strong for the literal sense of scripture the literal plain and uncontroversible meaning without any additions or supply by way of interpretation his elaborate sermon in the third volume of the abuses of hard places of scripture is a mine of wise and just criticism which it is strange to think has produced so little effect as it has done this is a reflection indeed which constantly occurs in the perusal of such a writer as hales the reader is constantly coming upon remarks and trains of thought which astonish him by their coincidence with the last lessons of christian criticism and philosophy that the bible must be interpreted like any other book would not have been any novelty to him only he would have added that with all our pains in interpreting it there would still remain hard and intricate texts in regard to which our duty is to wait and pray for light and not rashly to attempt any solution it is the craving of men for certainty in matters which god has left in obscurity and which no wit of man can penetrate which is the chief source of controversy in the church i verily persuade myself that if it had pleased those who in all ages have been set to govern the church to have taught men rather not to have doubted than to have expected still solutions of their doubtings to have stopped up and damned the originals and springs of controversies rather than by determining for the one part to give them as it were a pipe and conduit to convey them to posterity. I persuade myself the church would not have suffered that inundation of opinions with which at this day it is overrun. When we seceded from the church of Rome, our motive was because she added unto Scripture her glosses as canonical to supply what the plain text of Scripture could not yield if in place of this we set up our own glosses thus to do were nothing else than to pull down baal and set up an ephod to run round and meet the church of rome again at the same point in which at first we left her quote. again in the same sermon which abounds in pertinent and choice sayings which a reader instinctively notes as he proceeds quote, if he that abases the prince's coin deserves to die, what is his desert that instead of the tried silver of God's word, stamps the name and character of God upon nehushtan, upon base brazen stuff of his own?" There are few theological writers who present more scattered beauties, both of thought and expression, sayings which surprise the reader for their quiet profundity and ripe store of meaning. A quaint humour plays along his page at times and a quick frequent variety of illustrations which make his sermons and tracts as fresh and interesting as when they were written if one reflects how difficult it is to read some of the best theological writers of the seventeenth century men like andrews or hammond on the high church side or owen or even howe on the puritan side this will seem no ordinary praise it is the complete rational activity of the man the life of thought within him which fuses together his stores of knowledge and gives them forth in breathing and not dead forms this interest animates all he does his wealth of illustration if sometimes excessive and occasionally irrelevant is never tiresome drawn from a copious and diversified learning it is never put forward for the sake of effect it has no air of ostentation or pedantry it is the natural play of a richly cultured mind His patristic and classical allusions come in rapid and easy succession, nimbly tripping up one another in their course, as if they ran a race in his fertile brain. It is no uncommon thing to find Aristotle, Chrysostom, and Cicero or Horace, all studying a single page of a sermon, and fitly lending point or beauty to the thought. A happy phrase or sentence from one father suggests a happy phrase or sentence from another, and both are wrought with felicitous touch into the texture of his own composition as in the following example, which strikes us as quite a curiosa felicitas. Quote, Prayer added unto diligent labour is like a sweet voice to a well-tuned instrument, and makes a pleasing harmony in the ears of God. The good housewife, saith Chrysostom, as she sits at her distaff and reaches out her hand to the flax, may even thus lift up, if not her eyes, yet her mind, unto heaven, and consecrate and hallow her work with earnest prayer unto God. The husbandman, saith St. Jerome, at the plow may sing a hallelujah. The sweating harvestman may refresh himself with a psalm. The gardener, whilst he prunes his vines and arbors, may sound some one of David's sonnets." But our criticism is sufficiently extended. We have quoted enough to show what Hales was as a writer, especially as a thinker, what a genuine breadth of reason and of spiritual apprehension there was in him. The combination which he presents of simplicity and grasp of view, of modesty and depth, of sobriety and yet freedom of judgment, is particularly attractive. Liberal as are his opinions for the age, he exhibits no rashness or intemperance of statement. He sees the folly of mere deference to authority in religion. He exposes the main vice of theology in all ages, the substitution of human opinion or conceit in the place of divine truth. He expresses himself bluntly at times, but never coarsely, and his intellectual temper, upon the whole, is admirably balanced. In a true sense his mind is unshackled. He has thrown himself loose, that is to say, from many prejudices. But he is nevertheless always reverent, earnest, and moderate. He sees very well that it is not the clergy, or any particular class of men, that are mainly to blame for prevailing bigotries. It is rather the natural sloth and prejudice of human nature he is content therefore to unfold the evil and point the remedy he knew human nature too well and had studied human history too intelligently to suppose that he could speedily enlarge men's thoughts on such a subject as religion he held up a higher light in his own teaching but he was aware how many from weakness of reason or strength of passion would continue to turn away from it he was no more fitted to be a reformer than a martyr his reason was too wide and large and he felt all the difficulties of a subject too keenly To thrust his own views impatiently or violently upon others he was clarendon tells us fain to keep his opinions to himself as being far from confident that they might not harm others less calm and sensible than himself who might entertain other results from them than he did this led him to be very reserved in communicating what he thought himself on those points in which he differed from what was received and there is something to be said in behalf of this spirit of reserve A constant experience makes it evident that there are certain minds constitutionally incapable of any freedom of opinion in religious matters. They neither desire it for themselves nor understand it in others. A freedom of speculation like Hales's startles and confuses them, without awakening in them any higher thoughts. They seem only capable of receiving the truth in some partial, half-superstitious form. And if the superstitious vesture is stripped away, truth itself is apt to follow. They have none of our author's power of discriminating the essential from the accidental in religion and hales knew this very well he knew also the violent and harmful prejudices which persons of this contracted turn are apt to entertain towards men of a more liberal thoughtfulness he had heard both himself and his friend chillingworth denounced with coarse violence as socinians to a man of quiet scholarly temper such things are odious it is not only that they feel them unmerited but that they also feel that no vindication they could make would be intelligible to the men who urge them for those who deal in such charges are invariably incognizant of the deeper grounds of religious opinion they judge of religious differences from the outside from superficial resemblance or antagonism with no finer edges either to their intellect or their conscience with no subtlety or depth of spiritual imagination they cannot penetrate below the most obvious distinctions of belief And especially they cannot understand minds which, like Hales's, are constantly seeking a unity of religious conception, which delight, in search after such a unity, to strip off the scholastic folds in which religious opinion has been swathed, and to see divine truth according to the simplicity which is in Christ. But, reserved as Hales was as to some of his opinions, there was one point on which he expressed himself with frank boldness. Nothing troubled him more, says Clarendon, quote, than the brawls which were grown from religion. And he therefore exceedingly detested the tyranny of the Church of Rome, more for their imposing uncharitably upon the consciences of other men than for the errors in their own opinions, and would often say that he would renounce the religion of the Church of England to-morrow if it obliged him to believe that any other Christian should be damned, and that nobody would conclude another man to be damned who did not wish him so. Close quote. It is sufficiently obvious that, quiet and unobtrusive as Hales's life may have been, he was a man of marked influence upon a few higher minds personally he had no ambition and apparently but little activity he kept aloof from the fierce practical controversies of his time it was his nature to do so to brood and meditate on the principles underlying religious controversy rather than to take any active part in it his intellectual refinement his sympathies with the past his love of the concrete and tolerance of the historical results to which christian usage and opinion had gradually grown in england made him inclined to the royalist party, with which he ultimately threw in his lot, and whose misfortunes he shared. In no circumstances can he be conceived a Puritan. Those instincts of political liberty which were the highest and most aggressive element of Puritanism, if not uncongenial, could only have feebly influenced him, while his ideas of religious freedom were plainly of a more thorough and comprehensive, in a word, of a more rational character than Puritanism has ever shown itself capable of attaining. The importance attached by the Puritan party to minute matters, details of worship or special interpretations of doctrine, were scarcely intelligible to a mind like his. Their dogmatic handling of scripture, their love of formal theory and abstruse logic openly repelled him. Like his friend Falkland, therefore, he stands significantly aside from both extremes. He is a churchman without narrowness, a friend of authority who must yet have hated in his heart and deeply felt the folly of Laud's tyranny in freedom of thought and clearness of faith he greatly excels the mere professional divine of any age he is evangelical without dogmatism and preaches grace without despising philosophy at once conservative in feeling and liberal in opinion he hates all extremes as of the nature of falsehood and a prolific source of wrong he is the representative the next after hooker of that catholicity yet rationality of christian sentiment which has been the peculiar glory of the church of england End of chapter 4, part 4.